Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my fellow creatives. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast celebrating creativity, the creative class, and creative culture worldwide. I'm your host, Sourdough. And on today's episode, I'm honored to be joined by a very talented and delightful human being. She is a professional writer and comic here in LA. I want to introduce my friend and colleague, the one and only Katie Love. Well, thank you for that great introduction. I don't think I've had that much respect, and I don't know, 10, 15 years here in Los Angeles. So well, you know, that's what your agent paid me for. You know? <laughs> Feeling good about that. <laughs> How are you, Katie Love? I'm well here at the cozy Scott Power office. It's grand. The nest, the power nest. It's creative, controlled chaos, everyone. I said I wasn't going to say that on, on record, Do you speak but truth to it's Scott the power. truth, and yeah. it's a great office with good bones and lots of books, so I'm going to try to act smart. Lot, they're all pop-up books, Katie. <laughs> Looking good. <laughs> Loving it. So how's life these days? What uh, You got a pr- big performance coming up? I just did a big show for TMI Hollywood, okay, which is like if SNL and TMZ had a illegitimate redheaded stepchild. And that was a great show because it, I'm a big fan of sketch comedy, yep. but I've never really been a sketch comedy performer, taking a few classes or whatever. And I just really respect that craft. Yep. And I had so much fun. I mean, what a great, what a great crew they are. And it was just a really good show. And my biggest, this tells you where my priorities are. I'm like, can I swear on this? Uh, hell so yes. I, that, that was really important to me to find out that I could talk about my genitals and I could swear. Yeah. So that kind of gives well, you an idea. Well, that's my litmus test for really any friendship <laughs> and any any organization. Can I talk about my genitals <laughs> or not? Really? Being, I just limited it. It was that. being live broadcast <laughs> through Facebook. And so I had all my friends in the Bay Area because I'm from San Francisco Bay Area. Nice. And they had little watch parties. So I was pretty excited about that. Right on. Right on. Yes, yeah, so that's what I did recently. So how did you find yourself involved with TMI? It was really interesting. I was actually on a client call with an amazing real estate agent client of mine, Lee Fortier. Or she's probably going to say, why did you slam my name? So Fortier or Fortier, I don't know. But anyway, she's a brilliant woman that also does a lot with theater. And I think she's the publisher of, I think, 
theater 411, I can just hear her going, no, that's not it. But it's something like that. And so I was doing copywriting for her because mm-hmm. I do copywriting. Yeah, for let's a clarify this for our listeners, yeah. because yes, you write comedy, but you are also a professional writer for hire for corporate gigs and, yeah. and more kind of straight ahead kind of article writing and so right. on and so forth. So yeah. I do. I've written over 350 websites. But who's counting? And right. Oh, I counted every single one of them. I'm like, why? Yeah. But yeah, I really enjoy that part of it. And I like working from home and doing my own stuff and helping businesses and stuff like that. But that's how I met her. And so she brought along a guy named Pete. And Pete is the producer of TMI Hollywood. And he was going to do some design stuff for her and some video stuff for her and, and some production stuff for her. And she wanted us to meet. So he brought along his wife who books the show. Uh-huh. And of course, being the comic that I am, once I found out someone was in front of me you're, you're who, on. who books a show, I'm like, let me tell you more about me. And then I sort of forgot that I was there for the client and <laughs> became a narcissist. And I'm sorry to everyone. So, Well, hey, it sounds, <laughs> sounds like it worked out pretty well for yeah, you. Yeah, I was really excited to do it. So That's super I'm very great. Honored. Now, when it, when it comes to, because I mean, one of the reasons I was excited about you being on the show today is that I'm pretty certain that you are. We've had funny people on the show, but I think you may very well be our first comic. So, like, <laughs> this row. is a milestone <laughs> for the Not Real Art podcast. Oh, I could find you so many comics. In bring them. Let's bring them. Now, Let's you do should it. probably get extra security if you're going to start doing that, and I will prep you for that. Well, what so. you don't know is that you're sitting on a chair that I have a button to eject you right out of the room. So, the security's Excellent. built in. Yeah. Yeah, I like to be in some kind of parameter of control, knowing that it's not all me. Right. having to behave. That so, so I'm excited to have you on because you're a comic. Because, you know, as a, you know, like, you know, visual arts or performing arts and, and of course, comedy is kind of a performing art, but, or it is a performing art, but the, I know the journey of so many of these visual artists and other creative professionals, but I, the, the journey of a comic has to be a very personal one. It has to be a very unique one. I, you know, I don't know that people literally go to school for comedy, but I know there are schools for comedy. I mean, what was your journey? My journey was I left a religion. I was in a cult religion, and I call it a cult because I think that anything that separates you from your family and the people that you love because you don't believe like they do, and they demand that kind of loyalty and split families up is a cult. So that's how I define it. But I was raised Pentecostal. How were you? What were you raised? I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness. Okay. So when my mom died, I went to go live with my sister, who at that time had just been studying with the witnesses and was really zealous. Sure. And I was shown this book that says it was all these like animals lounging by like this pool of water and these lazy wild animals, just quite the beast that they were. And they said, you know, this is paradise. Do you want to live in paradise forever and see your mom again happy? And what nine-year-old kid isn't going to say yes? Yeah. So I got pulled into it that way. Sure. And I was in it for, gosh, till I was, I think, 20 years I was in it. Sure. And so when I left the religion, I was kind of rootless. Yeah. I was always really creative, and I know I was funny by nature, but... I just needed something to express myself and I was in a lot of pain and I didn't really have connections. I literally lost every friend that I knew 
and everyone I grew up with in one day when I left that religion. I had my niece left who wasn't a witness. She had been raised in it, but had also left voluntarily, only she wasn't baptized in it. So she wasn't in, she was in kind of a cool loophole where she didn't have to, you know, abide by some of the rules, but it was painful for because her Because she wasn't baptized? Because she wasn't baptized right. in the religion. So she still talks to that part of the family, but mm. I don't get to talk to any of that part of the family. So it was me my niece, and then my brother was never a Jehovah's Witness. So mm -hmm. that was it. And I had one friend that was a Jehovah's Witness that to this day is still my best friend. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we always laugh and say, maybe that's the reason we were in this goofy thing. She was in it for just a couple of years and left. Right. And so I was really kind of wandering around needing something to express. And I don't know, I was watching, I think back in the day, I don't even think Comedy Central was on yet. I was watching a comic on VH1 and I was like, I could do this. And I started going to shows, headliner after headliner after headliner shows. I refused to go to any open mics because my thought was, I'm not gonna learn what I need to learn from someone who's just starting out like myself. Right. So I went to look at everybody that I could that had been in it for a long time, and I learned the cadence of the speech and the setup and the punchline, and I learned by watching, and then I started writing, and I was already a writer. So the first time that I did comedy, I literally had about 20 minutes prepared. Wow. And I went to the Holy City Zoo, which of course is famous in San Francisco. It's where Robin Williams used to perform. Shh, no pressure there. No pressure. And I met Aisha Tyler in line. Oh, right enough. on. And we both had our $2, you know, ready to go. We had to pay to play. Right. And I had my two bucks and she had her two bucks. And we just talked for a minute and I was like ready to go on stage and ready to kill it with my 20 minutes. They, they were like, you've got three minutes. You're on number 48. <laughs> oh, man. And I was like, okay, I'm going up the same size as my bra size. Number 48, yay. And my family was just like, my niece was there with her fiance, I think at the time, and my scraggly friends that I had, you know, gained at workplaces or wherever. And I think they had to stay there till like one o'clock in the morning and we were just so dead after. <laughs> like it was just like this marathon of really bad jokes. But it was really, it was, I knew, I knew the first night. And uh, I've, I've left it and I've come back several times, but I'll tell you, I just love it. Nothing heals more than comedy. It really does. Every joke that I do has something that's happened behind it. Yeah. You know, there's a blueprint to it. So I'm really happy to be in it. Wow. So you said so much there that I want to touch on and sort of unpack in part because we sort of share similar things because, you know, whereas when I lost my religion, I didn't necessarily lose my family, but I'm so the black sheep prodigal son that they're still <laughs> praying for. You know what I mean? Yep. I love a black sheep. Yeah. You and know, we're a special breed. We are. <laughs> and because we, you know, because, hey, you know, like we, we figured it out. We thought ourselves out of it. Yeah. And yet at the same time, I know it, you know, it comes from an honest place, you know, my parents and whatnot. I mean, they're just raising me the way they think was the best right way to raise right. their child, yeah. which is the scariest fucking thing in the world to do, yeah. be responsible for an innocent soul. But yeah, so I totally get it. And I feel you in a, in a real personal way. But I got to go back to something because, you know, I know who our famous Scientologists are. Who are the famous witnesses? Like, <laughs> like you know, like the, the, this. Okay, yeah, this. that's who? so interesting because, right? you know, I've always had an issue with that because one of the doctrines in the religion is we are no part of this world. And they just beep, drum beep, that. Beep, beep. Yeah, they just drum it into your head. Yeah. We are no part of this world. So it's really strange to see like a celebrity that is a Jehovah's Witness. Sure. Never, I could never wrap my head around it. 
And I remember when I first went into it, I think I was in fourth grade or something, and I had to go to school and tell them that I don't celebrate any holidays and that I couldn't salute the flag and that I would stand and respect, but I wouldn't put my hand over my heart and I would not recite, you know, I would just not, I could not salute the flag. Yeah. And I was just so adamant. And I would just remember telling the teacher, like, don't make me do it. I can't do it. I'm I'm no part of this world. I'm no part of this world. And she's like, okay, fine. (laughs) stand in the back, shut up, you know? So (laughs) that's how much it was drummed in our heads. So, but to answer that question, the only one that comes to mind right now is Michael Jackson. (laughs) Oh, he was a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, he was, his mother is, I still, I think she is still to this date. Interesting. You know, so he was, he had that kind of upbringing. And I mean, what a heinous example of (laughs) like, I mean, I love his music, but I mean, you know, what a legacy there. But, you know, he and I are from the same, we were born in the same town. And of course, he lives like, well, well, yeah, he does a family neighborhood somewhere in Encino, not too far from where I'm, where we're sitting in my home. But we were both born in Gary, Indiana. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the only one that comes to mind. I know there are others. Oh, but there was this lady, and it was called, her show was called Get Christy Love. Remember that? And it was this late detective show. Yeah. And she was a fabulous black woman and she had this awesome afro and I thought she was so amazing. Right. And she left her show, I think, because she was a Jehovah's Witness. Interesting. And I remember an article coming out about it and then I remember going to some really ridiculous thing that they call an assembly where all these people gather together, all these witnesses at a giant, you know, stadium. And you sit there for four days listening to things in reverb, 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 you know, fornicating is bad. Anyway, bad, bad, bad. (laughs) So the sound is bad. No, is it? No, no, the sound in the the hall that you were talking about with the reverb. (laughs) Oh, terrible. So, yeah, I remember they thought that was so great that she left. Her position in the world, you know. But wasn't Prince a Jehovah's Witness? I thought. I feel like there was some kind of esque, Prince esque witness thing, but come on, that guy was. He was a sexy little motherfucker. Yeah. Like, traditionally, I like a a larger, taller man because I want to feel smaller next to him. But I got to tell you, Prince, he was a little guy, but he was. Ooh, I always thought he was so sexy. Yeah. So, how do you have that much sex? vibe coming out of a Jehovah's Witness. I don't know. I mean, I've kind of made up for last time for myself, but if he was doing it at the time that he was in music, I right. don't know how. Yeah, because I had heard, and again, yeah. second, third hand, I'd have no idea. Yeah, I don't we're, know. Really, this is we're true. really well informed on this <laughs> yeah, show, aren't we? That's right. Our research like, is I don't know. My I producer, mean, <laughs> my producer's up, you know, outstanding in a field. We'll get some fact checkers, you know, yelling at us, and, I'm sure. Yeah, the rhetoric or whatever, the, you know, the gossip I had heard was that the reason he was on so many painkillers was because his religion would allow him to have surgery and his religion was that he was a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, so, Again, yeah, I don't know, and I don't know if the Maho- if the Minnesota Jehovah's Witnesses are a different breed than say no, the that's SoCal. the thing. It's so culty that every yeah. single congregation is the same, and it all comes down from the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society in New York. Okay, so everything that that rolls out is all from that HQ. Mm. So, and I wrote a, a memoir. Mm-hmm. I, sometimes I go memoir. And then sometimes I like to just like put a little like class on it and say memoir. Yeah, yeah, that's classic. And I think both are correct. But I wrote a book about growing up Jehovah's Witness, Two Tickets to Paradise from Cult to Comedy. Mm. So I changed the title a few times just trying to grapple with what I really wanted to say. And when I finally came out of the religion, comedy is what healed a lot of that 
pain, not all of it. I had a shit ton of therapy. I was in therapy so long that I think that my therapist had transference because she started referring to me like her daughter and calling me at home and shit. And I was like, am I going to get charged for this? Because it's a Saturday at two o'clock. I feel fine. But, you know, there's a process of of getting out of a cult. Yeah. You know, mentally and emotionally. So, yeah, no, it it is. It's deep, 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 deep shit because... I mean, I'm in therapy too. I see a shrink every week. Good. Can you give me a and referral? I totally can. And He's then maybe great. we could do a session here. Oh on my God. That'd be sick. I want people to learn from our pain, Katie. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like this book I wrote, I always tell everybody it's 80% funny and 20% really not funny at yeah, all. Right. And that's why I haven't hit a publisher yet. I had a big fancy agent yeah. in New York and Putnam almost bought it. And they said, we don't. We really love it, but we don't know what to do with the comedy aspects of it. And Mm. I'm like, yeah, comedy tragedy is what I do. I don't know how to not write like that. So Sounds unique and special. Why wouldn't they want to publish something unique and special? I don't know, but I'm about to go rogue and just do self-publishing because I just finished the last edit, I think, six months ago. And you know how this is. You're a creative person. Mm -hmm. There's a point where you go, and scene, we're done. Yeah, right. And you can't keep fiddling with it, yeah. and you can't question yourself. You have to be- It's so tempting to, yeah, but no, you can't. You got to pull the You have to be confident. Cord. And, you know, interviewing your grant winner artists was so wonderful for me because one of the themes that ran through every single interview was that moment where it's like, I have the confidence, I know this is my art, I claim it. I'm not going to keep fiddling with it. At some point, it's done. You put it out there. If it breaks your heart, it breaks your heart. But you got to put your art out there. Yeah. And I think that that kind of courage runs through every single creative person. It's not like people that are non-creative. I think we're all actually creative. but And it's not like non-creative people or people that are like, I'm a bean counter and I'm happy. That they don't have courage. It's a, it's a different kind of bravery, I think, to take a chunk of your heart and put it out into the world and say, love me or not, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. For sure. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's funny when it comes to stand-up comedy specifically, right? So, I don't know if this is still true, but for years, right, they used to say that the number one fear that everybody has is public speaking. Like, that was like, that's everyone's number one, number one right. fear, yeah. public speaking. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, when it comes to public speaking, I have no worry. Like, I've done a ton of public speaking. I love public speaking. I'm good at it. I can get up in front of a crowd. It's not a big deal. You know, obviously, you know, know your audience, be prepared, all that good stuff. But the notion of doing stand-up comedy scares the fuck out of me. Well, now I I want you to try it. Right? Like, like, and and yet it's interesting because there is part of me that, like, feels like I got to try it. Because if I don't try it, I won't have... Many regrets. I mean, I'll have regrets when I die. Certainly, we all will. If any thinking, empathetic person probably would. But if I don't try it, it's somebody, I'm going to regret it. You know what yeah, I mean? You got to do. Eleanor Roosevelt said, we must do that thing that we think we cannot do. It's like with the one cool yeah. quote that I kind of remember sometimes that I throw out. Another one is Tolstoy, which I think I've told you and I told a few of the artists what a strange illusion it is to suppose that beauty is goodness, which is a favorite quote here in Los Angeles. Yeah, right. I should start my act off with it because it's always very interesting to me how we revolve around beauty and the visual aspect of who we are in this town. And I do it too. And I didn't do it today because we're not on film, but sometimes I put makeup on my spots and my hands. Why not? Why not, Scott? Mm. 
Well, I do what I have to do. But anyway, back to your question. <laughs> what was it? It was something about trying stand-up comedy. Well, I'm okay, just... Okay, you. Yeah. So, yes. And, you know, here's the thing is that you already have material right here in your life right now. It's mm. nothing that you have to, you know, get prepared for and conjure up out of something that doesn't already exist. Your everyday life has comedy already in it. It is one of the few professions, the, maybe one of the only professions that... I've bumped into that a person can literally stand on stage with a piece of paper in their hand and workshop their shit. Yeah. Like, that's amazing to me. Yes. Like, I mean, you can't, I can't workshop a presentation that I'm giving in front, you know, I mean, yes, you can right. rehearse it, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, not live in yeah. front of a studio audience kind of thing. You can't set up a TED Talk over here at the <laughs> cafe and say, come down, I'm working on my TED Talk. People aren't going to come. Although, although I, you know, although I think that would be funny. I, I, well, I fantasized about like my bit. One of the bits could be like me coming in and like I'm like literally setting up to give the audience a PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> Like, okay, this is my, get ready. Welcome to the, this is going to be hilarious, people. It's like, welcome to the Ramada. Today's chicken is mystery hotel chicken with weird sauce that no one knows what the spices are. They're secret. So do you remember the first joke you ever told? Oh my God. Yes. And I was just thinking about this last night because I was at this place. If anyone ever wants to to see me on a regular basis, I usually go to this place on Tuesday nights to work out new stuff. Mm-hmm. I want to go. I want to go and see And lately you. I haven't been wanting to do anything from my normal set. And so I think people come in that are new and go, she's been at this for 23 years. What a hack. What a dipshit. <laughs> but it's because lately I've just not, you know, I like to do my standard my standard set, you know, when I'm when I'm on stage and it's a book show or whatever, but I've been really having fun with just getting up and working out new shit and not being afraid if people don't like it. So I go to the Coango General Store. Jim Coughlin runs this awesome room every Tuesday night at eight o'clock. And a lot of the veteran comics, I mean, people that have been doing it for 20 years go down and and work out new stuff. So it's always, it feels like family to Mm -hmm, me now. mm -hmm. And I become a heckler there. It's really weird. Like people get up and I'm like, oh man, dude, I don't know. (laughs) And I would never do that at a regular Ah. show. And sometimes I get these looks like, what is wrong? Is she got Tourette's? What is wrong with her? (laughs) But I've been having a really good time with it. And I was just, we had a new comic up last night she did great her name was jasmine i'm pretty sure her name's jasmine she did an awesome job first time she'd ever done it and i was really impressed with with her delivery and her confidence on stage and her writing and i was like yep she's got it you know you can tell right away if somebody's got it or not and she's got it and uh, but i was thinking when i was driving home that it'd be really fun to do a show with veteran comics and then some new comics but every veteran comic has to do one of their first jokes. Oh, that's great. Okay. And so so I was like, well, what were mine? So I was trying to think about what mine were. And one of them was, (laughs) I would put a giant piece of fruit in my bra, like an, or I'm not talking like a little like fig. I'm talking about a giant orange or an apple. I put in the middle of my bra and I'd be up there doing my set or whatever. And then I'd say, you know, they make a dust buster. Why not a bus duster? You're out on a date, things fall in your bra, you really need help. In fact, just recently, I was on a date, and then I would pull out this giant piece of fruit. And I just thought that was the funniest thing. I always got a big laugh on it. 
but a comic went up after me and I don't remember who it was. It was some guy and he was, you know, semi-famous and he was a real hard hitter and he was like, you know, really aggressive comic. And he's like, let's give it up for Carmen Miranda, everybody. And I never did the joke again. I was like, I'm a hack. You know, like I felt like I was, I don't think I went up for like a month after Uh, that. And then that very night too, that I pulled fruit out of my bra and that, and I mean, I did this joke for like six months with different pieces of fruit. I don't want the audience to think that it was the same (laughs) piece of rotting fruit. fruit. I would buy, yeah, I had, I was always going to the local fruit down which piece of fruit do i want to pull out of my bra tonight but there were fruit flies the last night that i did that i pulled something and a fruit fly came out and you could see it you know in the lights on the stage and i was like yeah i think this joke is done so yeah yeah that's one of them that i remember just a few of them and the fact that i mean that's classic right that you were standing in line (laughs) you're standing in line your friends are waiting in the audience you think you're all set ready to go and then they throw a curveball at you yeah absolutely oh always you know i think there's a lot of camaraderie in comedy but there's also this there's also like this this latent fear that there's not enough for everybody There's not enough. Not enough what? There's not enough sharing of information. So there was a joke in a movie, an Adam Sandler movie about comedy. And he goes, you know that nobody helps anyone. You got to find out on your own who books what, who does what, how you're going to get on stage, how you're going to get booked. And that is still true today. Interesting. You know, you you build a network for yourself and you build, I think, in any town, but especially in L.A., you got to keep good people around you. Mm -hmm. But I've noticed in comedy that that still prevails. It's hard to go up, especially to a woman who might be similar to myself as far as like the demographic of who we're going to appeal to and say, hey, who books this? Hey, who's doing this festival? Hey, where's the audition for Ontario? You know, like. And there's just sort of like a hoarding of information that I think is unfortunate. Interesting. Today, I saw an actress put something up. She said, people always wonder, she put it up on Facebook, and she said, people always wonder how I'm landing all these auditions. And she had a sheet of all these different sites that she visits to get these auditions. And she goes, I live on these sites. You can too. I want to share this information. Oh, great. And I haven't had a chance to go to her and say, I thought that was a beautiful thing that you did. Yeah. And I think we need to do that for each other. As artists, and that and, and that probably just comes from a sense of insecurity more than competition, yeah. right? This is—it's not like I, you know. I think so. Yeah. I think that inherently, comics come from not everybody. Like you know, Seinfeld will say, "Hey, I had a great childhood," but I do think that comics typically, you know, if we're going to generalize for a moment, come from you know a tough childhood or they come from a broken you know past, and there's sort of a jigsaw. Of there's a some big, damage there. Yeah, right. there's a, they're a jigsaw of beautiful human being. Yeah. I mean, and aren't we all? But I think in this industry, I think it's going to become more and more important that we support each other instead of hoarding information because we don't think there's enough or we're not enough or there's just, you know, there's a limited Well, and comics space. are needed now more than ever. I mean, laughter is the greatest medicine or whatever, right? And boy, do we need to laugh these days. We sure do. Yeah. I can't say enough about how humor heals, in my opinion. Mm. I did this narcissist interview, which I predominantly wrote myself for Voyage LA. (laughs) Right. I've done the same. Yeah. I I loved the piece, though, but I worked my ass off on it because I really wanted to speak to humor and healing. Mm. And I was talking about my book and I was talking about, you know, the journey and everything. And one of the things that I was talking about in there, I think I've lost my thought. 
that happens sometimes. I'm Don't getting worry, older, we're getting Scott. older. It's, yeah. it's, it's all but happening. It was something about humor and he, oh, I know, that I had done this clean show. And so I had to like, you know, I couldn't swear a lot. I couldn't talk about my dating life as much. And it was kind of hard for me and I got through it and I had a lot of fun, but it was challenging for me because I like to go a little bit blue. I'm kind of a Mae West on stage and she's a lot cuter than I am, but I have that kind of, you know, that's my kind of vibe. So they didn't want me to do that. And it was a, it was a cancer benefit. (laughs) So I kept it clean and everything. And then I was kind of like, I don't know, tail between my legs, kind of like murmur. And this guy came up to me and he was in a walker, great guy, and just a wonderful older gentleman. And he said, I really enjoyed, you know, seeing you guys. And I said, you should come and see me live where I get to do my blue material. Like, I don't know why I blurted that out at him. You know, poor guy was just giving me a compliment. And I'm like, you should come and see me when I do my real material. Like, okay, narcissist, shut up. And he goes, oh, well, tell me a joke now. And I go, oh, no, I couldn't. He goes, no, please. Okay, it's dirty. And he goes, all right. And I said, yeah, I've petitioned Facebook to include my vagina as a check-in location. For those of you who are sick and tired of checking in at the gym, this is a workout, people. And he laughed, and then he shook his head, and he turned around, and he walked out, you know, as slow as possible with this walker. So it's like, you walk the room, right? But this was a really slow walk because the guy was on a walker. And then I was like feeling mortified, like I'm going to get arrested by, I don't know, the cancer police, the the Torrance police are going to come in and say, you're being arrested for inappropriateness. And he came back. He went all the way to his car and he came back. And he said, I have to tell you that I have not laughed that hard since my wife died last year of cancer. And that moment was such a, like, that's why we do it. Most of the time, we're not getting paid for these gigs. So many times, we're driving all the way out. I mean, you know, you're you're on the freeway, the 405 sometimes for an hour or wherever you're going. And a lot of times you get there, you might get a drink ticket, you might not. You don't know. A lot of times you're doing it for free in LA. You kind of have to leave town and be booked to get paid for it. So that's our pay. I mean, that is our compensation for writing those jokes, for walking around our, you know, place of dwelling, like talking to ourselves all day from taking the stuff that's going on in yeah. our life, yeah. finding the funny and giving it back out because someone might relate to it. Yeah. You know, I think that's the underlying reason why we all do it. Of course, we love applause. Of course, it feeds our ego. But really, in the heart of the matter, it's those moments, I think, that is why comics do what they do. Right. Well, and it seems like there's... You know, we're living in this hyper politically correct kind of, you know, culture these days. Yeah, we are. And, you know, it sounds like from an outsider looking in and from what I've heard and read or whatever, it's getting to be because uh, I, I, for years I've said, you know, comics are the new philosophers. Yeah. Right. Like that's just kind of been my thing. Right. And maybe it starts with, you know, people like Jon Stewart or whoever, you know, who are speaking to current events or whatever. But right. the point is, is that now I'm understanding that some comics won't even go to college campuses anymore because you can't have a free thought anymore. Right. And so while on one hand we need comics more than ever to laugh and what have you, it feels like comics too are under fire. Absolutely. And this is a, such an issue right now. And I mean, I can only speak to that I think that it's important to still have an exploration of our different cultures. It's kind of a bridge to love. It doesn't have to be centered in malicious intent. I think when you explore a culture 
that is not your own and you show that you're a misfit in it and that you don't get it and you're trying to figure it out, that's comedy anyway, that you're a misfit and that your internal dialogue is not matching what's actually happening. And so there's so much humor in that. There's so much humor in me, you know, trying to go to any country and speak their language. It's absolutely ridiculous. I used to have a joke that I haven't done for a while, and it's not because of all the sensitivity. I just want to put some new nuances on it. But I used to have a joke about how Latins fight so sexy, and I fight like a dipshit white girl, you know, but there's self-deprecation there, see? So I'll talk about how I saw this couple in the Ralph's parking lot really going at it. And then this gal, like she just looked beautiful and she had her high heels on and he was in the muscle shirt and he just, they were so fucking sexy. And I'm standing over there going, you know what I would have said is, I think you're stepping all over my boundaries, okay? And they're like, okay, puppy. And I'm like, I wanted to have sex with these people. And I was like, how can I get myself in the middle of this fight? Right. You know, but that's kind of what I think is the safer thing is to have exploration and take a look at the cultures that we don't understand and that right. we don't know and do it from a place of self, you know, just self-identity, trying to figure out how we fit in all together instead of the attacks that I think yeah. are happening. I think that's why people are getting in trouble. Well, and but, I had I had a very personal thing happen a couple few weeks ago. So interesting. Uh, and, you know, we don't know each other very well, although we've gotten to know each other a little bit over the last few months. But, you know, you probably have a sense of my sense of humor a little bit, but I can tell you that I get great joy in sort of pushing buttons. Yes. You know, if it's sacred, like if something yeah. is deemed <laughs> sacred, like that's yeah. where I want to go. And I think that that's I mean, also comes from- let's go to India from, and have a steak. Is well, that what well, you're saying? Well, I mean, listen, once you've walked away from your religion, right? Yes. Once you've sort of made that- personal choice, then kind of nothing sacred anymore, right? right? Once right. you've thrown away the most sacred, right? Right. And anyway, so we're living in this time of hypersensitivity. Everybody's so precious about everything. And we're also living in a time, I think, where we value our symbols more than we value our values, mm. right? And so I think it's a danger when our symbols become more important than our values, right? Right. And I love pushing buttons. So anyway, so I'm at Burning Man, right? A, right. a few weeks ago, right? Yes. Now, it's fucking Burning Man. Okay, which I've never been to, but I think it's really cool that you're a dad and you go to Burning Man. Well, you know, I mean, I just think that there's just something really cool about that. That's like my dad's really cool. He's at Burning Man. I don't know. I just think that's really neat. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. I'll let my kids determine whether or not you're right. But so I'm at Burning Man. Burning Man is, you know, sort of one of my sort of sum it up by saying like if P.T. Barnum, Salvador Dali and the Grateful Dead had a love child in the desert, it might be Burning Man. Okay. But, you know, one of the hallmarks of Burning Man is that at the end of the week, many of these art installations are set afire. They are burned to the ground. Most famously, the man. Burning Man is burned to the ground. The temples burned. And art installations all over the playa are burned. Right. At the end of the week. Right. Right. This is a thing. Right. This is part of the culture. Right. Okay. So, and of course, Burning Man is supposed to be permissive and anything goes and there's no judgment and uh, radical inclusion and radical self-expression. It's like the new Woodstock. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it's two in the morning. Okay. It's a Tuesday night. Okay. I'm high on God knows what. Okay. All right. (laughs) I'm with my buddies. Okay. We are getting our bikes because you ride your bike, you know, around. I see a hangover four coming out of this. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. All right. So the couple a good looking couple next to us or on getting their bikes and overhear us say something 
that they comment on. So we start chatting, right? The, you know, right. the five of us or whatever. And so turns out they have a camp. We have a camp. Oh, you should come to our camp. You should come to our camp. Blah, blah, blah. Great. And then he says, the, this new friend of ours says, yeah, he said, you'll know our camp because of the the big American flag. And I said, oh, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, the hallmark of our camp is this 148-year-old American flag. And then I say, oh, that's really cool. Are you going to burn it at the end of the week? <laughs> Uh-oh. I literally, he, oh, he, oh, oh it, it so did not land. <laughs> Did it? So all your my friends, friends laughed. cracked up. Of my friends cracked the fuck up because and he just gave you that stare. He, I don't know if he was and, a vet and then he or ran and what. got a gun. You know, he literally was just like his whole face changed, his whole demeanor changed. He literally looks because how dare you suggest such a thing? How I can't even believe this is unbelievable. Like he was so offended. And you brought this flag to a place called <laughs> Burning Man. He's like, I would no more burn. It's a 140 year old flag. You think I would burn this flag? I go, buddy, it was a joke. I just busted your balls. Right. Like relax. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I literally thought we were going to go to blows and like, Whoa. you know, and I was like, wow, okay, we are living in a sensitive time. If you can offend somebody at Burning yes. Man about a, a culturally appropriate, contextually appropriate joke. And what a weird place to bring. Does he travel with it now? Well, see, by now the way, I need to go into the depths of this story. Like, I want to know who this dude is. Like, I know, right? Is he traveling around? Is he driving some weird van? Are there AR-15s in the back? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it, the like, part of the culture of Burning Man is what they call decommodification, right? Yes. So, by the way, why is an American flag there? Like, you know what I mean? Like brand symbols, brand right. names, brand elements, yeah. icons are kind of not supposed to be there. I mean, they're there because, of right. course, people have their RVs or what do you haul trucks or whatever. Right. But, you know, he's made the, <laughs> the flag, you know, the front. And I like of- how he set it up with. You'll know our camp. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Because the American flat, you're on American soil. It's going to be all right. Like, <laughs> yeah, like we know that you're Amer- we're all here it, together. It's a 148 year old American flag. Well, first of all, no one would know that because guess what? Everything is dirty on the playa. Like, like, and like you, you could have brought not- a brand new flag and it would have looked 148 years old. Right. But as from an artist's point of view, don't you need to do something to protect that? I mean, should we be spraying it down with some kind of protected? There are so many angles on this. Like, like ridiculous- I feel like that should be framed if this is 148 <laughs> years old. Like, you can't even have sun on different pieces of art. Am I correct in this? That you have to be careful with the lighting on a painting. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, how are we sure. having a 148 piece? Of material just hanging out hey, by the way, at Burning Man. This feels like this item. I'm getting the sense that maybe this item has been stolen from a museum. <laughs> like, uh, like, no, no. I mean, like, who knows, right? How do you no, have but, a 140? I mean, now we have a lifetime movie. <laughs> That's and you right. know, lifetime movies always have a full sentence. So, the 148 American, 48 year American flag stolen and resurfaces at Burning Man. <laughs> yeah, that's it, a really interesting character profile. It, it was. It was. It was. Who wants to write this script with us? Hello, welcome to Los Angeles. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's funny. So yeah, so yeah, so I there's feel a lot of so that was a personal that was a personal yeah. moment of like how sensitive things are these days, right? And you know, but so how do you deal with that? And like, how do you deal with hecklers i mean what's your strategy for an ass a drunk asshole you know i i have to say now watch the next show i do there'll just be a million hecklers i've never had a real serious heckler and i think that what happens is there's something happens to me when i have a mic in my hand and i'm on a stage it's it's my treehouse and i just feel like this is how i feel about comedy i write for me i write what i think is funny 
I write about the things that me and my friends would laugh at, but I'm there to perform for the audience that got off their ass, found parking, walked in, paid their fee, got their two item minimum, and sat their ass down in the chair. I have such respect for that. So I don't, I've just never really had a heckler and I don't know if that's part of it, but that's kind of my motto in comedy, write for yourself, perform for them. There's a respect that happens there. And now my friends are gonna give me shit on Tuesday nights because I have become a heckler at this room where I'm yelling things at people, (laughs) but these are my buddies and there's some kind of like family reunion-esque to it. So yeah, I think that how I would handle it is I would just go to that person and start. I love, you know, as as you know, because I, I worked with you on these artist interviews that I like to go in and pull things out from people and they're find out what their story is. I'm very interested in their story. So I would probably go to that person, but that, of course that's hard to do if they're drunk, you know, so yeah. I have to appeal it t- to them from a drunk standpoint. Now, if they were super disrespectful or they were yelling slurs or something like that, then I'm going to want to shut it down because that kind of energy just can kill a show. Yeah. So I, I would not want to get angry with them though, if that was where it was coming from, but I've seen some terrible heckling before and just wanted to die in my seat by the way that the comic got so angry so fast. Yeah. You know, and the part of the reason they get angry because you don't you don't have that much time on. Right. You know, we all have, like right now, I probably have a good 45 minutes to an hour material. Mm-hmm. But in Los Angeles, sometimes I go out to a club and I'm set to do eight minutes and a celebrity will drop in and now I go from eight minutes to four minutes. And right. sometimes I want to say, listen, you already have a sitcom. You're already famous now. Give your time back to the room. Right. And I get all like pissy about it. And then give me your drink ticket. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I want a Diet Coke for losing that joke. But a lot of times we don't have time to really deal with the heckler. Yeah. You know, because we've only got six minutes. Right. And it kills you because you got all these great jokes. I've been going out to this little mountain town called Pine Mountain Club. Mm. And I've been doing like 25, 30 Pine minutes. Pine Mountain. I, think my, I love it. I think my brother-in-law, my ex-brother-in-law has a place there, a little cabin in the mountains yeah, over there. It's, yeah, it's in the Los Padres National Forest. Right, that is it. Yeah, that's right. And you just, it's just so great because yeah. they, they love having entertainers come in. So we've been, it's called Jessica Abrams and Friends, and I'm one of the friends, and we we drive in and we stay for the weekend and we do comedy. We do about four shows. Mm-hmm. I'm loving these people yeah. because it's the first time in a really long time that we've all gotten to do longer sets, you know, and people are there because they want to see comedy, not just because there's, you know, they, uh, let's go to the improv. I got a free ticket. Right. It's not like that. They're going out on purpose to see comedy. Yeah. So it's just reignited my love, I think, for the craft. So the the best man at my wedding as a professional pianist, okay? And so he has, over the course of his career, has played in piano bars, you know, a lot, right? Yeah. And there was a long stint where he was doing the dueling piano oh, bars, yeah. right? Okay. Those are intense. Yeah, they're intense, right? He's- It's so fuck, drunk mania, it's isn't it? drunk mania, and he's a master I mean, at, I kind of like to get drunk at this. Right, and and he's in so, so but years ago, <laughs> years ago, he had a heckler. And, you know, and this, this heckler was just like, just beating him up, you know, for a while, like all night. And so finally in the middle of the show, right. He just shuts it down. He shuts, you know, he's like, tells his partner, Dave, Dave, stop playing, stop playing. You know, they just kill the music. Right. And there's this room full of drunks. Right. Right. And he, he grabs the mic and he points at the guy and the audience, he goes, listen, buddy, 
I don't go down to the YMCA and knock dicks out of your mouth when you're working. <laughs> so shut the fuck up. And back on. You know, and the guy just shut the guy down. And yeah. he never said another word. But I just that line cracked me up. I don't knock that dicks out of your mouth at the YMCA crazy. when you're working. <laughs> and the thing is, if you would have handed the mic to that person. They probably would have rambled something for about 30 seconds yeah. and they would have been done because they'll realize in that second, oh, this is a craft. Right. Although if they're super drunk, who knows what they're going to realize? Well, I don't so know. It's, it's, it's a couple, you know, like, and what do I know? Like, I've never been heckled or have I? My wife heckles me. Anyway, so. Well, we're probably being heckled right now. This isn't live. Oh, my God. No, no, no. Okay, the people are God. totally flipping us off going, you guys suck. No. Yeah. <laughs> But so I have an interest, you know, like, like my base level with the heckling is that it's just fucking rude, you know, respect the art, respect yeah. the person that's up there, that kind of thing. That being said, you know, the heckling, it feels like is par for the course. If you're a comic and you're like, you know, playing a room full of drunks, obviously you have to be somewhat prepared for the sucker punch because, right. you know, it comes with the territory. So I, I was just curious as a comic, like, you know, do you have strategies? Do you have, you know, plan A, plan B when this shit happens? Sounds like you don't have to deal with it very much, but well, it just I, feels you like- You know, I really don't have a plan, but I just think intuitively I would yeah. go after that person and find out what their story is yeah, and right. then make it funny. Right. When I had my own talk show that I'm bringing back, as soon as I find a location, looking for locations, people. I had a show called The Katie Love Show, which mm -hmm. was a live comedy talk show, and I ran it out at Flappers for a year. And I would have musicians, acoustic musicians, because the stage was super tiny. Mm -hmm. And I would have different comics, and they would come up, and they would do their bit, and then I would interview them afterwards. And the thing that was great about that show is that I would have to find the funny in the moment. So because I was doing the show every week... I had this character called Googleicious, and I would say, just, you know, throw out a word, throw out, ask me if I know this, throw out something, and I will have to find the funny as I figure out whether or not I know this. And then I would challenge the audience to do the, the same. That built a skill set that I didn't have prior to that, which is find the funny in the moment. Mm -hmm. I think comics need to be able to do that, but it's also find the funny in the story and do it instantly. And with the heckler, if you can diffuse their reason to act out, I think that's probably the, the smartest way to do it. But there are formulas. I mean, some comics probably have, you know, a, something in their arsenal. I mean, I think comics that are more assertive, like an Andrew Dice Clay, would probably have more hecklers than I would. You know, he kind of fosters that kind of Righty, environment. Yeah. And, and he's yeah. he's probably great at it. I haven't seen him in a long time. But, right. you know, those kind of comics probably have an arsenal of things that they would come back with. And, you know, going down to your job, I don't, you know, I don't come down to your, you know, down job. Down to the and, YMCA and, when and, you're working and knock uh, tits out you of know, your mouth. I don't come down to McDonald's and, and tell you how to work the fry machine or whatever right, right, it is, right, you know. Right, right, right. So there's plenty of tactics to do that, but that's how I would do it. Yeah. I'm more of a storyteller, so I want to know what the hell's this guy's story. Right, right. What the fuck are you doing with the 148-year so flag yeah, right, <laughs> at <right>. Burning Man, <laughs> you ding-dong, and right. why isn't it disintegrating? Right. And how do we know that this is the real thing? And 
oh, I'd go into his history and I'd just make him so bored with himself that he'd shut the fuck up. <laughs> you know, that's usually how I would do it. I do that at family reunions, you know. <laughs> Somebody's just pissing me off. I'll just go so deep into the history and get so intricate with it. They're, they get bored with their own story and then they shut up. Yeah, big family then reunions. Can, you come we, from a big family? Then we can get back to the tater tots. Well, I have my brother. I mean, since you lost half your family yeah, I, in the- so I, yeah. I'm, I don't talk to my sister anymore. I don't talk to her husband and her and her son. But I do, I have my brother and my sister-in-law that live in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And then they have two sons that have kids. And so I spend Christmas usually in Phoenix Mm because I like the lights on the cacti. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's nothing more romantic than lights on the cacti. It's very phallic. And I just like, you know, driving down the street and seeing all these like phallic cacti lit up with Christmas lights. There's something gorgeous about that. But so it's not, I wouldn't say it's a big family reunion, but that's a fantasy of mine. I'm always saying, we should all get together at the same time. And people are shaking their heads. No, we don't want you all together. Family, the other F word. Exactly. (laughs) But they recently saw my comedy live. I did a little porch light set for them. They had rented a place. They always come down to the, to Oceanside or, it's not Carlsbad, and they rent a place on the beach every summer for a week or two. So they did that again this year, and we had they had a bunch of friends in from Phoenix, and they were all taking over this little condo resort area in Oceanside. And I had a show that I was doing. I needed to prepare for it, and someone said, you should do it for us. And I go, okay. And I don't think I'd ever done live comedy in front of my brother who, you know, he's kind of Christian. I mean, to say kind of, that's an understatement. He's Christian, and he's got a great sense of humor, but I had never, like, performed live like that, and I just went for it. I mean, I couldn't, because I was preparing for the set that I was going to do, and I was doing a longer set. So I had to wait for them to put all the kids, you know, all the, these families all had kids and, you know, little kids running around, so we had to wait till all the kids went to bed. And then I literally stood under a porch light with moths, and did comedy for my friends and family. And oh, it was cool. rather horrifying, but I had a really good time. I had I such a good time. Like, my brother just had the same look on his face the whole time. Like, why is she my sister? Why is she my sister? <laughs> Could I still convert her? I think she's a lost soul. So, yeah, <laughs> me and religion, not really a match. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, what? how vulnerable? I mean, talk it about- It really was. Yeah, right. It was weird. It was weird. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I'm talking about some guy, you know, that I found off the internet and how I accidentally slept with a murderer. And, you know, your brother is sitting there going, what is my sister up to? What is- well, I, I admire the hell out of that because I got to say, like, when it comes to my family, my parents, what have you, like, because we went to blows over so many things during- the whole exodus, right? Like when I was losing my religion and we were, cause I was pretty, unlike the rest of my family, I was very, actually very intellectual and philosophical about my religion and argumentative. Like I would debate, you know yeah, what I mean? Like, me you know, and so the bottom line is, you know, all these years on, I, I guess I just got to this place where I was like, you know what? Like, well, they know they're not converting me and I know I'm not converting them. So let's just agree to like not discuss any of these fucking th- hot topic issues, right. which end up going nowhere. You know, and that's it, the sane way to do it. I yeah. mean, I remember saying to my sister when I was moving to Los Angeles, I said, hey, I'm moving to L.A. I hadn't talked to her in like, I think, five years at that point. And I said, hey, I'm moving to L.A. I'm going to go into comedy. I've got these scripts. I'm going to go do this thing. And I'm leaving the Bay Area. She lived in Washington at the time. 
And I said, I'd loved us to have a relationship outside of religion. And that was just not happening. And then I got to LA and I mean, I got my ass kicked when I got here. All kinds of shit happened. And my apartment almost burned down. The guy's apartment above me caught on fire and I had literally minutes to get out of my apartment oh my God. before I would have succumbed to the smoke. And after that, you know, obviously I lived through it. I'm here to talk about it. But I really felt a longing for my family. I mean, my sister raised me because after my mom died, she became my legal guardian because she's 14 years older than I am. And so I wrote her a letter and I said, hey, I really want to have a relationship with you. We do not have to talk about religion. Yeah. I will be respectful. Yeah. I could keep it to an hour visit. I just want to have some kind of connection to you guys. You raised me. You're my family. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sitting in this burned out apartment getting my stuff out and uh, just picking through things and figuring out where I'm going to live. And there's a knock on the door and it's the UPS guy. And I'm like, that's weird. And I have a registered letter from my sister. And I open it up, I'm, and it, all these watchtowers and awakes fall out of it, which was a bad sign. Yeah. I write about this in my book, and she alluded to that it would have been better for me to have died in the fire than to keep touching the unclean thing. And the unclean thing in the Jehovah's Witness view is anything outside of their religion. Right. You know, sleeping out of wedlock, you know, or having sex out of wedlock, fornicating, celebrating Christmas, whatever it is that you're doing, you big pagan. Okay, so I'm a fornicating pagan, proud of it. But that was a moment for me. I was five years out of the religion. I was sitting in literally, I shouldn't even have been there because I shouldn't have been in that kind of, you know, the air quality was really bad. And I went out onto my terrace and I took those watchtowers and wakes and I ripped them up into a million pieces and threw them up out into the pool. I'm sure the pool guy really appreciated that. But I had this moment where I was like- He converted, by the way. He put all the tracks together. <laughs> he and put it all together in a jigsaw puzzle, and he read it, and he's like, I'm a believer. My life sucks. <laughs> I'm but cleaning I, these pools. Right. Yeah. And so I was standing there, and I, I, I remember like yelling up to the sky, like, you know what, God? If this is the way that you love, I don't want any part of it. Yeah. You took my family from me. You took my youth. And there is so much going on about Jehovah's Witnesses right now. I just spoke to a lawyer the other day about it. Just so many abuse cases. And they're all coming to the forefront now. And there's justice. But for me, I needed to tell my story. And I think I did that in my book. And I can't wait for it to come out. Because I feel like it'll help some people. I think we do need some humor around it. But I also think we need some heart. And I think that if you don't agree with someone because of what they believe, whether it's political or whether you're sensitive to something or whatever, it's not a reason to completely ostracize someone. Try to understand what their point of view is, because it's that kind of like the shunning is such a one note, I don't know, just one dimensional way to treat something you don't understand or you're afraid of. Well, and it's been a while since I've read it, but as I recall, in the New Testament, <laughs> Jesus Christ hung out with the sinners. He didn't hang out with the, with the saints and yeah. the clergy of the day. In fact, he, right. he hated the intelligentsia of the day right. when it came to religion. And yeah. The golden I mean, rule, baby. Right. That's what it's all about. Right. You know, and I, I still question whether or not the Bible is the word of God or not. I don't, I don't even know what I think about that as a writer. I think about... If the editor of, say, I don't know, Good Housekeeping or Red Book or Vogue or, you know, The Hollywood Reporter has more consistency in their publication than the Bible and the editor is God, then is it really the Word of God? Yeah. Like, I've always had a hard time as a writer looking at the con the consistency of it. 
Well, you when know, you realize continuity, yeah. like how is this possible? Yeah, no, it's funny as I mentioned so, a minute ago, right? Like, so being you know sort of an intellectual kind of philosophical kid about my religion. There was a time, so my, so I come from a long line of ministers. My grandfather was a minister, so on and so forth. So, and at one point, and I was a super sick kid that almost died a few times, and and so of course I didn't, and I didn't because of a couple things. One is I'm a tough motherfucker that doesn't die easily. I'm a diehard. Number two, I had great doctors in medicine, and number three, I had a family that loved me and was sending good prayers and meditation and energy, you know, to me, which I'm not going to discount. Right. However, in my parents' mind, of course, only God saved me. And therefore, I have a special purpose. God wants me to be a minister like my grandfather, Bob. So I was sort of right. nurtured in this way, right? So I was supposed to go to seminary uh. and all that, right? So, and I didn't really take it seriously until I was like maybe 14 or 15. So there was a couple of years there where I really doubled down and I was like, okay, I'm going to look at serious. I got very devout, but I was also very intellectual and I wanted to under- better understand the Bible. And so there were these Harvard theologians that wrote this book that literally was called who wrote the Bible. And it's this scholarly breakdown of the construction of the Bible as we know it and how it all came to be in the J document and all these things. And and I remember vividly carrying this book through the kitchen one day and my mom says, what are you reading? I'm like, well, this is, you know, it's a book. What, 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 do you, what, what kind of book is it? You know, who wrote the Bible? What do you, what kind of book, what, what, what nonsense? You, the Bible is the inspired word of God. Why would you even need to read a book like that? You know? Yeah. But the point is, to your point about who, you know, like when you get to understand it, like you understand that there's fucking editors that put right. this fucking thing together. Yes. And a lot of those editors were, you know, sort of, you know, priests of the day or or monks of the day. And also or, there's books missing, I guess. Yes. They're, oh, yeah. They left they shit love, out. Yeah. You know the book what? of Michael, I think, or the book of Thomas. Cart. It's the book yeah. of Thomas that's supposed yeah. to be outstanding. But, you know, when you look at many of the world's largest organized religions, I mean, so many, there are many common themes, common mm-hmm. ideas and values. Right. You know, and and I think that those are the, the themes that you take out. These Some of these timeless epic stories. I don't know if you've ever seen The Power of Myth with Joseph Campbell no. on a Netflix shout out. It was a PBS thing with Bill Moyers back in the late 80s, early 90s. You must watch that. It I is will. one of the most amazing because Joseph Campbell was, uh, I think he taught at Yale or something, but I mean, one of those Ivy League guys, but he was a, the world's sort of expert, renowned expert in the mythologies of the religions and how these stories came to be. And, you know, some of them are are way older than the Bible and that informed the Bible, that informed a lot of these stories. But there right. are common, you know, themes throughout cultures, you know, around the world that didn't even know each other. Right. And so, anyway, so I think that's the thing, the trick to find those common themes that unite us as a human race and unite us as a human beings. I mean, I, I've been saying, you know, since I lost my religion in recent years and decades, like I'm just trying to figure out what it means to be human. Yeah. And because, I mean, you talk about, you know, the Jehovah's Witness saying we're not of this world, we're not of this world. A very similar thing. It's like, no, 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 we're not, you know, the world is, you know, we're not of this world. You know, we are supposed to deny our humanity in many ways. You know, you can't fuck around. You're not, you know, being horny. Like, that's a sin. You know what I mean? Like, you, know, you can't masturbate. That's a sin. You know what I mean? Right. And, you know, my grandfather, who I respected and loved dearly, yeah. he's a great guy. He used to have this horrendous phrase <laughs> that I, I, at the time, I thought it was wise. You know what I mean? Because, you know, when you're, you don't know shit when you're 15 or 13 right, right. or whatever. He used to say, carry your burdens with a smile. Uh, yeah. Carry your burdens with a smile. Now, that know, just needs a lace collar behind it, doesn't right, yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. But if you talk about denying the reality of, of and how you're feeling. And those are always the people that implode. 
Yeah, you know, and, and he, but you know, smile. And by the way, you wonder why so many of my cousins or so many people that I know have fought drug addiction and alcoholism yeah. and and a, you know just fucked up lives for yeah. ten years because they're denying. I know somebody. I won't obviously mention her by name, but she is gay. Yeah, she cannot come out of the closet, and she has been in and out of rehab so many times because she is torn up. Between her truth and the mythology that she can't shake. And it's just ripping her. It's destroyed her life. Right. And I have countless examples of that. I cannot remember who said this, but it really stuck with me that so many religions use the Bible as a shopping cart. Like, okay, we're going to take this scripture. We're going to ignore this one. We're going to take a a little shopping cart through the Bible and pick the scriptures that, you know, fit our power-based doctrine, our money-based doctrine, our intimidation factor-based doctrine, and we're going to regurgitate that out into the world as our religious rhetoric and call it the truth. Yep. And every religion does it. And, you know, unfortunately for gay in the LBGTQ community, I think there's one scripture that says men shall not lie with men. Okay, whatever. Like, they will bypass other scriptures about God is love or whatever to hammer this point home. I just thought that, I just, I just thought that that meant that men shouldn't <laughs> sleep together. Like, I don't want to sleep with another dude, but I'll fuck another dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Like, cause I don't say anything about fucking, this is sleeping, laying. I don't want to sleep with a dude. Anyway, sorry, so, I digress. <laughs> but the thing is, is that that always stuck with me. I wish I could remember that he was a preacher that said it. And I'm like, that's a preacher I could listen to. Yeah. Because I'm honest. all about the yeah. I'm all about the golden rule. Yeah. And people have asked me, well, do you believe in God? And I just get this weird area. I probably have a, the look on my face now, this weird like I kind of have to like stare out the window and go, I believe that nature is my church. I believe in yeah. a higher power, but I believe that the God everybody wants you to believe in is so man-based and so it's religious rhetoric and yeah. that's different from spirituality. Right. So I call it the Oprah religion. Yeah. Be a good person, make money, give it back. Right. Right. So yeah, that's I had a, where I sit I, with it now. I had a, you you were being very nice earlier talking about what a cool dad I am going to to Burning Man. <laughs> <laughs> now, My, are we going to get any pictures on this? Are there going to be any supporting documents? Alleged, um, allegedly, there are photos. Allegedly, yes. I think we need I will to share. see these. I will share. I will I share. I think your audience is going to want to see that. I'll, I might show is you. Is there a dad outfit? Sh- like, yeah. are you in a dad outfit? And I'm not. That to me is like a zip up house coat, kind of like. You know, maybe some dad slippers at Burning Man would make me happy. There may be photos like of me wearing a tutu. There may be okay. photos oh, of me wearing a tutu. Okay. Yeah, it's we need tutu to see Tuesday this. on the playa <laughs> in Burning Man week. So a lot of guys were in tutus okay. <laughs> on Tuesday. So my daughter, right? Because we, you know, like I said, you know, my, my wife doesn't have the issues I have. She was raised in a very sort of like casual, like we go to church on the holidays and maybe we're like, I don't know if she's like. I think she was Presbyterian. So, you know, very like yeah, Christian. You don't even light. know what you know religion what I mean? like, she is like, because it's you know, that chill. It's just so it's chill. normal. And so I'm the yeah. one with the issues, right? right? So anyway, so we're not raising our kids in any sort of dogma or ideology right. except the golden rule and values and ethics and honor yeah. and integrity and, you know, these important concepts that seem to be lost on my Christian brethren, some of them. Anyway, so of course, inevitably, right, you know, the conversation comes up, you know, not too long ago, my my daughter's like, you know, because we lost a dear friend, actually. Okay. And she said, you know, what happens after you die? Like, how old is, is she? She just turned seven. Okay. So, she was six when this came up about a year ago. And she said, you know, what happens, you know, when you die, you know? And I said, 
honey, I said, I, I honestly don't know. You know, I don't know what happens after we die. She said, well, is there a heaven? And because she goes to school with kids that, you know, sure. whether they're, you know, yeah. going to synagogue or church or whatever, like they're, you know, she's hearing this stuff, right? One way or another. I said, well, honey, I said, you know, some people believe there is a heaven, you know, but I said, I don't know, you know, and she said, well, is there a God? You know, and I said, she said, well, go to your room. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. Where were you, Katie? Love? <laughs> that was the best answer. And I totally blew it. I said to her, I said, well, honey, I, I, I don't know if there's a God. I said, but some people believe that there is. And then this was the moment where I was like, okay, maybe Burning Man is helping. Because I said to her, I said, well, you know what was something that, that people believe? And she said, what's that? I said, well, some people believe that God is a woman. And Katie, the look on her face when I su- suggested, right, that the most powerful, all-knowing, all-present all being in the universe, the giver of life, might actually be female, blew her mind. Like, I just saw her consciousness, <laughs> like, expand so cool. 10x, you know? Yeah. And it was, like, one of those rare moments where I actually felt like maybe I, you know, I had I had a good day, you know, yeah. as a good dad, because as a good parent, because as a parent, you have half the days, you just sort of make it up as you go, and you hope <laughs> yeah. you're doing okay. But it was that, because listen, I'm not, you know, and I got into it with my mom a while ago, because she wanted to know why I don't take her precious grandbaby to Sunday school. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, because I'm trying to give her something I wasn't given, which is a choice. Right. You know what I mean? Like, inevitably, she's going to wonder, you know, what the meaning of life is. Is there a God? You know, what have you. And when that time comes, then she, then I'll introduce her to all the books she can read about it and she can figure it out. I'm not going to spoon feed her and try to make her, um, you know, in my, in my own image. Right. You know? And I just, I really respect that because I just think that it's probably a challenge when a child says, you know, of course, there's always the joke, the standing joke, which you could do this in your act when you do comedy. Why? (laughs) Why? Why? Exactly. Why? And are we there yet? Right. But when you have to answer back, I don't know. There's, I think there's a lot of courage in that. Just to say as a parent, I don't know. And it's a huge question. It could shape the way that they think about their world and how they operate inside of it. To say you don't know, I think that's great. It gives them the space for them to think for themselves about yes. the bigger picture in life and how they fit into it. For sure. Instead of, I don't know, I just think it really, it shrinks our consciousness at a young age when we're told this is how we fit into it. Yeah, that's right. You know? That's right. And it really limits it, the possibilities. Yeah, I think it hurts the creative mind too. Yeah, for sure. You know? For so, sure. Yeah, well, Katie Love, the comic, I got to tell you, this is not funny shit. This is not funny at right? all. What, I mean, what happened really... to the funny? <laughs> we, we were supposed to, you know, we were going to be we funny really... today. And boy, we we're like deep. Okay. I can do a Jehovah's Witness joke for uh, you. Let's if you hear want. it. Knock, knock. Who's there? Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witness who? You mean you're interested? That's never happened before. Ah. That's one of my standards. Thank you, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. I have a knock, knock joke. Okay. Knock, knock. Who's there? Doctor. Doctor who? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, corny, 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 corny. corny. We, we so, got through it. Katie, Katie Love. So, you know, I met you really through our common friend, the Googles. 
<laughs> and I found you, I was doing some research and no, actually I take that back. It was our common friend, Craig. I uh, love C- Craig. Craig List. Yeah. And you were, uh, I think I had posted a, a, a writing gig and you, I believe, responded because as we said earlier, you also do freelance writing for corporate clients and things. And you've yep. been a freelance journalist. You've written for the LA Times. You've written for numerous websites. I think 350, but who's counting? 350. Yes. What a nightmare. You know, just make it 351. Can you just up it one? Because you're probably off by one. Yeah, I probably am. Okay, so just say 351 because that sounds really I can't tell you that I was present. I was actually present for every website. I'm like- Just sleep writing? Were you sleep writing? about us. (laughs) (laughs) Not every business is that exciting. I wrote for one guy who, and I don't even know the name of it. This is how I blocked it out. Mm. And I remember writing a killer funny website for him and just like so fun. And it was about the bubbles. What the hell do you call those? The bubbles that make up like a cold brew, you know, the... the so it's the, the, the carbonation? Yeah. Right. But there's a fancy word for it. Oh, okay. It's not just carbonation. Okay. Somebody will write it and go, what's wrong with these two? <laughs> do they ever research anything? Do they have any? <laughs> it's the effervescence. It's of those the- pretty bubbles that <laughs> okay. we drink. All right. And so he would go around with this truck and deliver this to bars or whatever. Mm, and mm. I made a really funny, fun storyline around it. And he literally said, this is so great. I need it to be no funny. <laughs> and I did not. I almost cried. And I'm like, I think I just want to be a TV writer now. Could someone hire me, please? No more websites. And now it's a year later. And I don't know how many years I've been doing this, but... Oh, my God. That was such a moment for me. Like, do you know what gem you have? Yes. You know, yes, like I no. get really involved in it. Mediocrity anyway. does not care. He he was a great guy, but he's like, yeah, I can't have this be funny. Yeah. Okay, yeah. man. Yeah. Well, so, you know what Thoreau said, right? Most people are living lives of quiet desperation. Uh, he's he's one of them. <laughs> but I was so grateful to connect with you because you. I was uh, looking- I was looking for a freelance writer that I respected and liked and could work with. And you and I hit it off over the phone. But we've been working together for the last couple of months because you have been interviewing about 12, well, 12 artists who were winners of our grant, the Not Real Art grant, mm-hmm. 12 artists that won a thousand bucks each to help them further their practice. And so the last many weeks now, you've been sort of deep in this interviewing so process with, with all these amazing artists. I mean, what's that been like for you? It has been, I mean, I think I posted about it on Instagram and I think that- Yes, by the way, I want to thank you for that. That was super sweet what you said. I mean, I can't even put all of it into words. There were literally, every time that I would sit down to do the interview, I would feel it while I was doing the interview. Mm. But I, I also had, you know, there's a lot happening during an interview where you have certain questions that you want to hit. You want to make sure that you establish a rapport and artists are a different breed. They may not want to give up information. You know, they're sometimes working in a bubble. So it's not like everybody's as gregarious as we are. Like, Mm -hmm. we've got our podcast voice on and we're ready to go. (laughs) You know, not everybody's like us, right? And so, but one thing, I just found such heart in these people. Yeah. And it moved me. Mm. I mean, and some of their struggles and... You know, one thing that always used to, or that still does for all artists is that, can they monetize their talent? Mm -hmm. Is there a way for them, you know, to get from, you know, that struggling place where no one knows who they are and and what they're up to, and they have all this beautiful expression to give, can they make a living from that? And 
you know, when I would ask that question, sometimes I'd get a nervous giggle, but I have to say that every single one of them loves what they do so much that money is secondary. And I just think there's a message in there for everyone to support art, you know, to never not think about it, to support live art, to support every form of creative arts that we have to give it to our kids to make it a part of our everyday life and i was deeply humbled so many times because i'm like my walls look like i am a one-dimensional ding-dong like i need to go get some real art (laughs) i have talked to all the not real art grant winners and i am an idiot i need to fill my walls with with art and one of the artists said that he gives He has a a technique that if someone's interested in his art, he actually gives them the piece to take home. And I think he says, give me half of it now and take this home and interact with it in your home. Like live with it Mm -hmm. and see how it changes in your possession and how it moves you in your home and really live with it. And if you don't want it after that, you can bring it back and I'll give you your 50% back. And he said, no one has ever brought the piece back. It stuck with me. It gives me chills now because I realized how interactive art is. It's not like I didn't know that on a surface level, but that just came in and hit my heart. And I just thought, how many times have we all been, I don't know, to a gallery or to even one of those like neighborhood like arts and crafts fairs, which the quality of the art there isn't always real high end. But the fact of the matter is someone took the time to express themselves through their art. And there's all kinds of different art at all different kinds of levels and all different kinds of expressions. And I just thought to myself, how many times has money stopped me from buying a piece that I really wanted? Right. And so I just want to look at that differently now. Mm -hmm. It changed the way that I look at what I put on my walls. And so after these interviews, I have to, I just feel like taking everything off my walls and just throwing it out. I have a wall in my office that I want to start collecting different pieces. I'd love to get, I'd love to collect one piece from each artist that I interviewed. Mm. I think that would be oh, pretty that's amazing. That's such a great idea. Yeah. So that's kind of a goal of mine. I don't know how I'll make it happen, but I just was so touched by these interviews. I mean, I was kind of in an interesting raw place after each one of them. Like, I want every single one of these people to just explode on the world. Just like, I just want to see them so successful. Mm. And of course, you know, I wish that for myself. I wish that for every artist. I've been in this town for 23 years peddling scripts and like, you know, writing websites about bubbles. And I was in banking for a while. I was in sales for a long time. I've taken these branches to support myself, but I know who I am and I know what I want to do and I know why I'm here. And I think just knowing that sometimes there's a pain in that because you're like, take me as I am. Here's my art and love me. Like I'm trying to do this thing with you, for you and next to you. And I just saw a lot of my own stuff in some of the things that they were saying. And I thought that was really interesting. And I just learned something from each one of them about resilience, about art itself, how educated they are, how nuanced. These are some incredible people. And then I found out about some party that I'm going to get myself to in October. I'll be going to that. Someone said, well, we'll see you at the Not Real Art event. And I go, 
What? Did I not get invited to that? <laughs> October I gotta, 19th. <laughs> I got to call Scott right away. Is he trying to hide it from me? I'll just show. I'll crash it. I'll come in as a caterer. I'm coming yeah. to that thing. Yeah, you you were you were on the uh, do not invite list. Sorry. <laughs> they That's never so let funny. the writer on set. Damn yeah, it. Yeah. 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 Well, it was, I was so grateful that for you to do that work. And I mean, you know, these artists better than I do now, quite frankly, mm. because you, you know, you went to such an intimate place, but there's also a lot of overlap too, right? I mean, like on a certain level, I mean, how much, you know, these folks are, are doing their work, hoping to get paid, yeah, you know, hoping to sell, yeah. you know, you go and you do gigs for, you know, nothing. Yeah. Right. What what is it with artists not getting paid or you know what I mean? Like it's such an interesting world to be in because when you're an artist, money does take a back seat for any number of reasons. Right, right. And you know, I do think you have to compartmentalize it, but I just don't think that I think we just need to have more respect in this industry and how when I say in this industry, I mean all the creative arts, the dancers, the singers, the sculptors, the painters, you know, the comics, the songwriters. It's a travesty that you know the arts and music have been cut from schools and no. to think that kids are growing up without that kind of balance in their lives breaks my heart because our world is so stark there's so much responsibility that we have to save the planet to save ourselves to there's a lot we need to do and that's worldwide not just our country under the the creepy administration that we have right now. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the Antichrist, Trump? <laughs> but I think that without the arts, we are lost souls. Yeah. And I really believe in having arts education be part of our, you know, educational system. It's okay, Katie, it will be. They fixed it because now STEM is STEAM. <laughs> you know, it was it was it was STEAM. And it isn't, isn't it interesting and sad, right, that they made the mistake to begin with, right, to leave out the arts. And then, of course, course corrected, you know, a couple of years later, oh, well, now it's steam. But no, I'm the same way. And by the way, quite frankly, that's part of the rationale behind this podcast, because if this podcast can reach a 16-year-old in Ohio. Yeah. Who is aspiring to be an artist or is an artist and doesn't know where to go, doesn't have a, a view, doesn't, there's not a class, they don't have a community, they don't have a tribe, they don't know what to do, where to go, but they want to be a comic and they stumble upon the Katie Love episode of Not Real Art and they get a glimpse, they get a, they get to touch, they get to hear, they get to be inspired, they get to learn for free right. because the podcast is free. Right. That's what this is about, right? In terms of Not Real Art and, and everything we're doing, which is just about trying to, Share the love, spread the love, and support, empower, celebrate, what I call celebrate and elevate, because you know the budgets for arts education is getting cut. So how can media step in? How can content step in? How can podcasts help bridge the gap to inspire and empower folks out there that wouldn't get it otherwise? You know, Right. You're doing God's work. Yeah. Well, if there is a God, you're yeah. doing it. Well, they, if there is a guy, well, I think we decided <laughs> there may not be. So well, I'm doing, doing my the, work. You're doing the golden rule, <laughs> the golden rule work. <laughs> I'm doing dog's work. I just thought I'd bring that back. I appreciate Tell it. Tell me no. about this thing that's behind you that you can describe to your audience with fangs. What is that? 
Do I need to put my glasses on? It's kind of a hybrid. It looks like an award of some sort, maybe a fish that was that caught. Is a lar- that is a largemouth bass. Okay. Okay. I call him Bill after the artist that made it, Bill Kiefer. Shout right. out Bill. William Kiefer, who I've known since meeting him in Chicago in a bar back in 1995. Very but cool. But that looks, um, that is paper mache. It looks very heavy, doesn't it? Yes. It's actually very, very light. But Bill grew up in Wisconsin. Bill has, and people can look him up at BillKiefer.com. He also is a tattoo artist, Eden Tattoo, out of San Diego. But Bill is one of these amazingly talented, multi, well, multi-dimensional artists, multidisciplinary artists. Yeah. But he grew up in Wisconsin. He's a huge fish. You know, he loves fish. He loves fishing. He loves, <laughs> and But he's fucking hilarious. But he's he kind of a, violent about it because that is- <laughs> It's a scary, no, no. But he has, yes, he has I a I noticed sick, that's not hanging in the kids' room. No. He, that's- my, my, but my son calls it Baby Shark, which, okay. by the way, I don't know if you know, but the song Baby Shark is all the rage uh, among two-year-olds these days. I do not know yeah, Baby now Shark. Now you know. Now you know. Maybe you'd like to give us a few bars of that for a the baby people. Shark, doo, 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 baby Shark, do-do-do-do-do-do. Yeah, baby Shark, do-do-do-do-do-do. Baby Shark. It just yeah. goes, it, it's just very repetitive. <laughs> and then it goes, and then Mama Shark goes, Mama Shark, do-do-do-do-do-do. Dada Shark, do-do-do-do-do. Grandpa Shark, do-do-do-do. <laughs> like, it just goes on and on. And there's a hip-hop version. There's a jazz Whoa. version. And there's, yeah. Wow. So, yeah. So the breakbeat on the hip hop version is dope. Let me just tell you. Yeah, I'm going to find this. Yes, I'll, I'll send you the link. It's, it's outstanding. So my son calls us Baby Shark because it, you know, obviously looks a little scary. But Bill has a whole, by the way, this was a really great story behind this because I remember when he was making this in 1996 or something. Yeah. And he was making it for his dad. And his dad even gave it to him for Christmas. So his dad never hung it. He he when his dad died, Bill found this laying on the pool table in the basement and his dad had never hung it. And Aww. so he took it back and had it hanging in his apartment in San Diego. And so two years ago, when we were visiting, because Bill and I are still dear friends after all these years, and he happened to be living in well, actually he was living in Long Beach. I go down to see him for dinner one night, and this right. is hanging in his office. And I said, Oh my God, like I remember when you were making this and I said, I said, I got to have it. How much, you know? And he said, and he thought, he's like, well, let me think about it. I'll get back to you. And then like two weeks later, this thing is delivered in this gorgeous box that he had built, fabricated. And it was like the, and it was just like, had this special lock on it. It looked like a treasure chest, but like, like some, some sunken, like wooden thing, but it was all cardboard. Again, it was like super light, just super fabricated. And and so I open it up and in this is the, is the large mouth bass. And he says to me, he goes, if there's anybody that deserves this, it's you. He says, you've supported me all these years. We've been such dear friends. You've been with me during my journey, and I just want you to have this. But this fish is part of a whole world of fish that he's creating. That is, The premise of the concept is that the polar caps have melted. The oceans have risen. The cities are flooded. Of course, the people have fled. But yes. the fish, the fish have moved in. Right, right into our cities, <laughs> right, and they have these great characters and great stories and, and personalities. And of course, this was the fish that started it all. And there's a tongue. Do fish have tongues? Oh no, no. I, is that a tongue? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it, you're gonna have to take a picture of this to he, accompany oh, I the will, podcast. Yeah, I will. Post I will have to post it. But no, he has. People are gonna want to see this. What, what is it? What is? And In if fact, you look, before if, I leave, I'm gonna do a selfie with it. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. for sure, absolutely. And if you look We're on the other side, you, if you look on the other side, it's stu- it's a stuffed fish. It's stitched up. Like he's. If you look on the other, you'll see the stitches. Oh, yeah. This is this is just a mounted stuffed fish. But now I really want to know: Do fish have tongues? 
I don't think they do. I don't do. think they do. No. Yeah. No, I'm pretty I mean, sure they don't, don't actually. Have, you know what you need? You need what I had for my show, mm. w- which is a Googleicious or a Google man. Okay, Google man. And it's just somebody that's just following you around and when you don't have time, they stop and Google things for you. <laughs> or they're just really smart and they know shit. Uh, right, so. So do fish have tongues? Let's ask Siri. Hey Siri, <laughs> do fish have tongues? Ray fin fishes have something similar to a tongue called a basithyle. <laughs> well, there you go, Katie Love. A, I feel fish, so much better a, now a, that I know this. Bishenhyle. <laughs> Yeah, so it's something like a tongue. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So we learned fin something. Fishes. You know, this fin isn't just any podcast, people. <laughs> you're gonna learn about religion, and you're gonna learn about comedy and fish tongues. Katie, it's called infotainment. <laughs> is what this is. <laughs> is that what the kids are calling it? That's right. All right. So before we go today, this has been such a delight. I had a great time. W- will you please come back? Please, will you, anytime. Will you be a, re- you know, a returning new, guest? I'll just bring r- random news items. Oh my God, that'd be so fun. And things that people send me in the mail, like dentists that sent, this dentist sent me this thing about how you could be put to sleep and what a good time it was during your, it was a family, they were all smiling at the camera and it was talking about how everybody was put to sleep while they were having their dental work done and now they're happy. And that's literally the copy. I was like, I need, this is a job for me. I need to call this dentist office and say, we need to write you some new copy because this is really culty and weird. (laughs) And sometimes I get jobs like that. I'll get set something that's so bad that I'll call them and say, don't ever send this out again. I can fix this. So anyway, sorry to interrupt, but well, and, and, that just and, came to and my the, head. The, the problem is that, you know, they got big business uh, <laughs> out of that. That's the bigger problem. So, well, first of all, thank you for this. Thank you for promising to come back because I can't wait to do this again with you. Be a good time. I want to make sure that our listeners know that these interviews and articles that you've been working so hard on are going to be available and going to be published and distributed and available on our website, notrealart.com, and we'll spread them out across the social channels. We want to promote the hell out of these amazing artists. These wonderful human beings They're awesome. that won our grant. And by the way, you know that, of course, this is a, you know, you're not going to continue to work together, but on other things, but this is also an annual gig because, of course, we'll have 12 more winners next year that you'll Yay. have to interview. <laughs> so buckle, buckle up, get your helmet. Because- you know what I found that too that was really funny while I was interviewing them? I'm like, I would have to go back on the transcripts because I recorded them all, of course, with their permission. And went back and I was like, stop talking about yourself. Shut the fuck up, Katie. Get to the question. Because I would just get so chatty with them because yeah. I was just so excited. But then when you're looking at, you know, the page and it's like, Katie, shut up. <laughs> you know, but I did it in a talk show style. I could have yeah. done it super Barbara Walters journalistic style. Right. But I'm just very comfortable with the more talk show style. Well, people, so people, yeah, really no, it, it's a way it. of coaxing. It's, a, it's yeah. a charming kind of technique, right? To sort of coax I'm a snake like, chama. Ah, That's yeah, me. Yeah, I knew you were up to something. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, look at you and your snakes, <laughs> your charmed snakes, your charming snakes. <laughs> Katie Love. So what's next? What's going on? Uh, where can people uh, find you? What are your socials? Where are you performing oh, yeah, next? Absolutely. Rightlaughlove.com is my website. And that kind of encompasses everything, which was a huge deal for me because I was always trying to keep things separate. So I'd be mm. like, my copywriting site is here and my social media is here and the two shall never meet. Never. And you should never know that I'm a comedian until I've worked for you for like a year. What part was in the closet? The comic part or the writing part? The comic part. Yeah. Because so many people get intimidated by that. Sure. And they want to know what I'm talking about, what I'm doing, where am I? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Oh, one lady said, aren't you real funny? Are you funny? 
Oh, jeez. No, not at all. <laughs> Jesus. I'm horrible. You know, she was kind of a bean counter personality. And I just thought to myself, this isn't going to work out. Oh, that's, that's classic. I, wrote for, I write for life coaches, which is hilarious, right? Oh, my God. So, I've written for a lot of life coaches. <laughs> and I have a joke about that, yeah. that I'm the person behind all this magic carpet ride to success. And you can feel <laughs> really good about that. And if you're ever reading a self-help book and you find yourself getting horny, it's because I wrote it <laughs> and that the definition about a life coach is that a life coach is someone who has done several face plants in their life and then rises up out of the unemployment ashes long enough to tell you what to do with your life. <laughs> right. And then they have to go find a writer to write that website, which is me, who's also done several face plants in her life. And together we make up a team called You Are So Fucked. So <laughs> that's my life coach stuff. But I had to tell someone that I wrote for, a life coach, I go, listen, I have a, a life coach joke. It's not about you. I've had the joke for a while. It's about the life coaches who are not educated in their craft, who I've seen some of their underbelly, and it is an ugly underbelly, my friends. And it's a bunch of crap. And that's where the joke was born from, because all of my jokes are born from something. So I used to just keep everything so separate. I was so worried about, you know, not getting enough work or things crossing over. And I just had an epiphany, like, I am not going to fragment anymore. Yeah. The website's right, laugh, love for a reason. You can see where I'm performing on the calendar section or if I'm doing a live author event. When my book comes out, I'll be doing that. I love writing for new businesses because I just feel like their story needs to be told. That's how they're going to sell their products and their services. So I like to find out what the story is. And it is it isn't always funny. And sometimes I do go, oh, mother of God, what am I going to say about this? All right. But every single person has a reason they want to be in business. And so I like that. But the comedy is really who I am. You know, I, I can't help but not write funny unless you tell me like that guy that broke my heart, do not write this funny. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the next time that I perform, I think I'm doing a really cool show. I can't remember. I feel like it's October 12th or 15th or something like that. It's a Saturday night. And it's a new hall for this company called Prophecy 333. And it's this really cool. I just went to the show last last weekend to see it. And my friend Sarah Taylor, she's a really interesting person who does comedy and Reiki meditation. And she mixes the two. So she says that it's wow. where her day job and her night job collide <laughs> and she's writing a book and i just yeah. find her fascinating so we she did all this comedy and i thought she was going to be real zen and that her voice was right. going to be down here in the life coach voice right here where we're going to get calm and fix everything fix everybody's fucked up problems way down here and she was just just a killing it she was just really authentic and then at the end she goes, all right, everybody, close your eyes, and now we're going to do a meditation. I was like, no way, because I've performed with her several times. Yeah. We do that Pine Mountain Club gig together. Right. And I just thought that was the craziest thing. So I'm in her show, I think October 12th, and I think it's on my calendar. Right. But it's called Divine Mess, so I'll be doing that. And then I'm always at Coanga Store on Tuesday nights, and then I'm going to be booking some other stuff and bringing the Katie Love show back. So. Right on. Well, I want to definitely. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'll coming have you to see as a you. guest. And I'll well, have you as a guest I, I, on the Katie Love Show, I, and we'll talk about religion. I love. <laughs> we could go deep as we did today. Katie Love, you're the best. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you very much, Scott. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and share it with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please be sure to press subscribe and follow us on IG at Not Real Artificial. We appreciate the support. Sourdough out.